Okay, well, thank you for coming to what will be a very interesting session this evening. Um, I'm here as your chairman. My name is George Phillip. I'm Professor of Latin American Politics in the Government Department. Uh, but much more important, um, I'm here to welcome uh, Dr. Uribe, who has been President of Colombia for two presidential terms and is one of the most prominent figures in Latin America today in terms of his uh, intellectual influence on his own country and those of other countries as well. Um, we will be listening to Dr. Uribe for a relatively short period of time in order to give a sufficient opportunity for a reasonable number of questions and answers and hopefully an interesting uh, and um, balanced discussion. Um, Dr. Uribe, as I said, has, is well known to us all, so I won't spend much time on his um, CV to say that he has an academic background in Columbia and also in Oxford in um, the Latin American Studies Centre there. He has been famous in Colombian politics for many years and he was president of his country from 2002 to 2010. Um, he's now um, a, a major figure in the intellectual role played by figures in Latin American politics and, and by reputation and, and prestige. Without more ado, I will introduce Dr. Uribe. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, students. Ambassador Rodriguez, his wife, distinguished consul, former Ambassador Sir Keith Morris, journalist. I am very pleased to be here with you. It is a great honor for me. I have been here by June of the year 1998 when I was at Oxford, and I, ha I was invited to come here for a seminar. I understand that we are short of time. And do you have many questions, criticisms, comments? Therefore, I will give you all my time. This afternoon, I, I, I have written an outline to, to deliver to you some introductory remarks on the triangle of confidence the combination of security with freedoms, investment promotion with social responsibility, and the advancement in social cohesion. I have written some points on how to create investment and how to validate investment through social responsibility and by advancing in social cohesion in the country. But I have resigned to deliver to you this speech. And I invite you to, to spend all the time that with all that the generosity this university has given us for your questions and comments. I have been very short in this introduction and the, the only point I beg for, from you for your questions is to speak slowly. <laughs> is to speak slowly. For me to, to having the opportunity to understand your questions. Professor, now we, 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 we can't turn <laughs> to the questions. You're already? Okay. Do you, you want to kick off? Uh, I, I, I respect the, 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 no, excuse me, excuse me. 
I respect the presence of journalists here, but I want to invite you to consider that we have students and professors, members of this university community. For I beg your consideration to give priority for them to ask their questions or to propose their comments. But you are the, you are the one assigning the floor, Professor. <laughs> well, these two caught my eye before anybody else, so I think it's first come and serve, first serve. I really would like to, to know, I would ask you to please, sorry. Thank you. My name is Miguel Molina, and I'm sometimes analyst of Latin America for the BBC World News. My question is, uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Uribe, would you please share with us your ideas on, on a country that is passing the same situation Colombia was suffering a few years ago, Mexico. What could Mexico do that Colombia did in order to uh, alleviate this problem of violence due to narco, uh, drug traffickers? It we'll is a very open question. We'll take a second question and then you can maybe answer them together. Pro professor, let me at the, <laughs> let, let me at the beginning try to do my, my best in, in, in answering question by question. And I promise that, however I am Latin and I have to speak very long, I will try to be the shortest I can in answers. Well, should you say wish, okay? Let me answer this question. <laughs> first, first, Latin America did consider that security was a way for dictators. Second, Latin America suffered the cost of the doctrine of national security. Third, as a consequence, the vast majority of, of people in Latin America were reluctant to security. For we were in Colombia for security with democratic values. For security as a source of resources, as a premise for freedoms. Narcotrafficking is the worst source of insecurity throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. In my opinion, there we can classify countries regarding security in three categories. Countries that recognize the problem and fight the problem. Countries that having the problem, they don't like to recognize the problem, nor do they like to fight the problem. And third, countries with the problem, with the willingness, willingness to recognize and to fight the problem, but with weak institutions and a severe shortage of budgetary resources, these countries are in need of international help. Mexico. Mexico is in the first category. I want to applaud before you the courage of President Calderon. President Calderon has recognized the problem. He's fighting the problem. It is very important that Mexico, whoever wins the presidency in the coming year, continues with the same determination, with the same courage, regardless the adjustment that the next president wants to introduce in the strategy and in the ta tactics. Of course, Mexico has many police bodies. Mexico has more than 2,000 police bodies. 
in the Mexican Congress, there is a bill to eliminate the municipal, municipal police bodies and to have only the state police bodies with uh, more power for the president to lead the police bodies. It would be very important that the Mexican Congress moves forward with this amendment. The other bill that is under consideration in Mexico is a bill to clarify the role that the military has to play in this operation against narco-trafficking. For the military to operate with confidence, it is very important to legally clarify their role. Mexico has introduced many laws that we apply in Colombia. I had the opportunity to hand to President Calderon one bill to forfeit, to confiscate illicit wealth. Other, other bill for my country to go after, for Mexico to go after money laundering. Mexico uh, has introduced these laws and now Mexico is in the process to apply these laws. It is very important to consider consumption and the sales of chemical precursors and the sales of assault weapons. I remember that some weeks ago, President Calderon said to me that in the last 20 months, the Mexican police has seized almost 100,000 assault weapons sold in the neighboring USA cities. It is quite difficult for us to fight criminals with this kind of, of guns that are being sold in the industrialized countries, not to speak for a while on the problem of consumption, because the problem of consumption is here and there. We can no longer divide the world in illicit drugs between those cons consuming countries in the north and those producing countries in the south. As California produces marijuana, we have problems of consumption related with criminality in our countries. <laughs> okay, you want to? My name is Isa Villo. I was a class assistant. It's, it's lowly, please. My name is Isa Villo. I used to be a class teacher of Professor Philip. I work for Diario Correo in Peru. I wanted to ask a question about the Peruvian elections. Keiko Fujimori says that, you, that she wants to be the next Peruvian Uribe. And you said... Agnes, Agnes Peruvian Lula. Okay. I quote her. Okay. I quote her. She, she spoke about Lula uh, and this. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. How do you think about that combination? And the other question is, are you still saying that Kumala was financed by Chavez? That's all. I don't say that. It is uh, the media. It is the investigation of um, politicians. It is the computers of Raul Reyes that uh, says that and uh, what is the problem? I want to go to a, a deeper issue. When I have been asked about Venezuela and Peru, I have said I am sad because of Venezuela and I am a, a great admirer of Peru. Peru is a rising star. But I, uh, I, I am a little bit concerned. 
about Peru. Why I am sad because of Venezuela? Because without private investment, in my opinion, it is not possible to sustain social investment in the long term. Although, even though they have an enormous wealth of oil reserves, it is necessary to have investment, private investment. And the government of Venezuela, step by step, has been in the process to eliminate the private sector. And of course, I think in five democratic parameters, security, freedoms, social cohesion, independent institution, and pluralistic people participation. And I disagree with the way the government of Venezuela is eliminating the independence of institutions. The last Congress that was elected in Venezuela last year, there was a coup d'etat against this Congress. When this Congress was elected, this Congress was deprived of many of its powers. This is a coup d'etat against one branch of the state. The independence of people participation, the freedom of people participation is being restricted step by step. Remember the Eastern European countries who adopted the communist way, they had elections, but from one election to the other, they restricted freedoms. I see some similarity with the case of Venezuela. The lack of private investment the disregard for insecurity, the lack of independent institutions, and the growing restrictions of people participation are faults against the democracy in Venezuela. On the side of Peru, Peru, I repeat, is a, is a country with momentum, is a rising star. But in my opinion, Peru should have had less fiscal superavit and more social superavit. In Peru, maybe there have been some kind of imbalance between the rate of private investment and the rate of social investment. When you have good macroeconomics, you need to have good political predictions. And to having good political predictions, it is necessary to invest much more in the social sector. For instance, while my country has reached three million families with conditioned cash transfers, Peru has, roughly speaking, 300,000. Therefore, it is very important for the political stability in Peru that Peru moves faster in social investment. Now, who is, the, who is going to be the president? Whoever the people of Peru decides. I cannot say more. Have you asked President Lula whether or not he's happy with uh, Madame Fujimori being Danes Lula? 
<laughs> okay, we'll move on. I, I will be happy. I will be happy if we can see Peru with the same rate of investment, of private investment, at the same time with a faster social investment. This would be will make many of us happy. Thank you. Gentleman in the green shirt. President Uribe, uh, on 10th May, uh, a prestigious uh, think tank, British think tank, the International Institute of Strategic Studies, released a report uh, commissioned by your government uh, in which uh, one of the conclusions is that the incumbent president in the incumbent uh, administration uh, of Venezuela has alleged links with uh, the leftist insurgency Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, FARC. Uh, I wanted to know, we wanted to know which is uh, your opinion on over the content of that report and how do you see uh, the policy of rapprochement of incumbent president Juan Manuel Santos towards Venezuela after uh, your government uh, just days before finishing uh, uh, reported on the alleged presence of uh, 1,500 insurgencies from the FARC and the ELN and over the presence of 87 uh, FARC camps on Venezuelan territory. Thank you very much. My name is Diego Moya. I, I should not refer to President Santos' policy on foreign affairs, but I have to be accountable for the policy implemented during my administration. Regarding this policy, many critics have stated that my administration was confrontational. What my administration did was to request for respect for my people. We understood that foreign relations are not to be quiet when terrorists are hit in foreign countries and these terrorists take advantage of their hideouts in, in foreign countries to kidnap and to kill Colombian people. It is very, very important to put this claim on behalf of the Colombian people. We bombardment we bombard the jungle of Ecuador. It was not the best option, but it was the necessary option. After many attempts against the far Kimpin Raul Reyes, we abated him in the jungle of Ecuador. Why? Many times he was there and his guerrillas did cross the borderline, came to my country, murdered our soldiers, and went back to find for hideouts in Ecuador. I remember that we stopped spraying on the Colombian territory just for a friendly gesture regarding the government of Ecuador that had requested us to stop spraying in the Colombian territory, 10 kilometers from the borderline to the interior of my country. One year after, FAR had planted there 20 
thousand hectares of coca leaves. And we introduced, not spraying again, manual eradication. And the people of Raul Reyes came from Ecuador to our country to kill those civilians involved in manual eradication. I want to, to say to you this. Maybe you remember the release of Madame Betancourt, the Colombia French lady who was in captivity for six years with three Americans and with dozens of Colombians. This Kingpin Raul Reyes was responsible for this kidnapping and he controlled all the communications for him to guarantee that Madame Betancourt was going to remain in captivity. We shut Raul Reyes down on the 1st of March of the year 2008. And the next morning, the intelligence of our army began to supplant the communication between the main kingpin of Far Hohoi and the jailers of Madame Betancourt. Why was it possible? Because Raul Reyes no longer was in control of these communications. For there, there is a clear connection between this operation against Raul Reyes and the release of Madame Betancourt and the others. In this operation, our armed forces found many computers. We were not waiting for this finding. But I remember that more or less at 3 a.m. of that morning, I called General Padilla, the commander of the military forces, and later on I called Minister Santo, our current president. General Padilla, please look for the computers. Because in, in the explosion of one bomb against me years before, played by the ELN, the second larger guerrilla group, my computer didn't suffer. I had the idea that these people had computers in their campgrounds. And we found many computers. We didn't manipulate these computers. We handled them with all that transparency. We sent these computers to the international police, Interpol. And the international police certificated that we handled these computers with all that transparency. Of course, the International Institute for Strategic Studies based here in London, has released a document. In this document, they examine the computers. You should study this document. Now it has a copy, and I will bring this copy back with me to Colombia, and I will go to many cities of the country with this copy to discuss, to discuss with my fellow Colombians about the findings of this copy. I, I have never denounced 
an international government without evidences. I did denounce them because we had the evidences. And it was our responsibility. Thank you, lady in the black. Uh, Thank you very much. My name is Annette Eidler. I'm a doctoral student in the University of Oxford, St. Anthony's College. I have a question regarding the pillar on security with democratic values, and more specifically with the new emerging groups that have been called the Bakrim. It is known that they commit violent crimes against civilians, that they are involved in drug trafficking, some are led by former paramilitaries, and they also have alliances with the FARC, so they seriously undermine security. Now it is also known that um, security forces, state security forces, have tolerated their presence and have collaborated with them, for example in Nariño, and this clearly undermines democratic values which you support. So therefore I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on why it has proven so difficult to tackle this challenge and how it could be overcome. Thank you. Once the Cuban Revolution won, at the end of the 50s of the last century, the new regime in Cuba chose two South American countries to replicate its revolution, Colombia and Bolivia. And my generation at those moments saw the emergence in our country of communist, Marxist guerrillas. And later on, they created a paramilitary reaction with the same level of cruelty. The war paramilitary was chosen in our country to name private criminal guns established to fight guerrillas. One of the main outcomes of my administration is that we recover two monopolies the state should have never lost. The monopoly of our constitutional armed forces to fight any criminal, and the monopoly of the justice administration to exercise its duties all over the country. Keep in mind, the name paramilitary for private criminal gangs established to fight guerrillas. You have said in some regions of the country, these new guns are in alliance with guerrillas. They are not fighting guerrillas. They are in criminality to make profits from illicit drugs. For we cannot name them paramilitaries. Our administration was strong against violence and generous with those who made the decision to desert from the terrorist groups. We had more than 52,000 deserters, and we treated them with all that, that generosity. In between 7 and 10 percent of those that we call demobilized relapse in, rel in relative 
comparative terms, it is a low level of relapsing. However, in absolute terms, when you think that there are four, five thousand who have relapsed in crimes, it is a big problem. For, in my opinion, my country has to fight then with all the strength. Otherwise, they can't expand as other criminals have done in Colombia. We cannot say that the army is in collusion with them. I trust in the transparency of our institutional armed forces. The cases of collusion, of human rights abuses, we cannot blame the institution for these crimes. We have to blame isolated individuals for these crimes. What I have heard in recent weeks about Nariño is that two out of three victims of violence in this province is because of these guns, Bakrin. There is one specific or criminal organization in Nariño that is called Lord Rastrojos. And I am worried because of this. In a new law, the government and the majority of Congress, they want to recognize that there is a conflict with guerrillas. I disagree. Here in Europe, and I have spoken with many professors, you consider that any act of violence, any threat of violence for political, religious, ideological reasons should be considered terrorism. And I have asked the European professors why you are so strict in naming terrorism. And their answer has been because we have plural democracy. In Colombia, we have plural democracy, pluralistic democracy. For we have the same right to request from everybody not to resort to violence. For I am in disagreement without wanting to recognize any, any political status to these criminals. What is my concern in relation with the, the guns you ask for? Because these guns are not considered players in the conflict. Guerrillas are considered, but these guns are not. I agree that these guns should not be considered players of the so-called conflict, as I consider that guerrillas should not be considered parties of, of this, of any conflict. We have many social conflicts, but we cannot recognize a conflict with terrorists because we are a democratic country. I am worried. The army has said, and in my opinion, there is a mistake, that they need to recognize the conflict for them to have all the military initiative to fight these groups. My question is, if they do not recognize the conflict with these new guns, and I agree, how 
they will have a strong initiative to fight these guns. I have this concern. In the past, the army did not intervene in the fight against the drug cartels. And first, because of the lack of this intervention, the drug cartels grew up, enlarged a lot, and after they penetrated some members of the army. We cannot repeat this mistake. We need that our military forces have all that, a strongest initiative to fight these criminals. For I want to be hopeful that tomorrow at night in the Colombian Congress, they will find any solution for the armed forces to have the possibility to exercise the strongest military initiative against these guns. Thank you. Gentlemen in the pink chair. Sir, thank you. My name is Clemens Law from Imperial College, and I uh, really appreciate uh, the time you give us to, to ask questions, but what I actually came for was uh, to find out about the three pillars of Colombia's recent progress. <laughs> so, could, you, could you maybe give us a summary of your speech? <laughs> My friend, when I was presidential candidate, I asked many students in the universities, have you any time thought to leave from this country without a return ticket? And the vast majority of them raised their hands. Yes, we want. I was sad. I saw that they had cut their roots with my country, that they didn't feel patriotism for Colombia. The war we chose to fight this problem was confidence upon three pillars, security, investment, and social cohesion. In the political speech in Colombia, people didn't like to speak on security, nor did they like to speak on investment. Every politician spoke on social cohesion. And I said, I said, when Marxist guerrillas began 40 years ago, they spoke about the poverty, the unfair income distribution in our country. They justified the violent procedures on these social problems. Now, after 40 years, my country is worse off with almost 60% of poverty. 20% of unemployment, the lowest rate of investment, and violence continues. And I said, we need to speak about what is the source for this country to have budgetary resources to funding, education, health, etc. And without investment, it is impossible. And I made a comparison with the old and with the new socialist models. All of them have failed. People removed the Soviet Empire, destroyed the Berlin Wall, 
change Mao Zedong for the new China because people were upset. What was the reason? The lack of standard of living. And my opinion, the main, de the main determinant was the lack of private creativity, of private investment. Cuba is an economic and social failure. And I have expressed my doubts on the future of Venezuela. For we said, we need investment with social responsibility. This is the only way for, this, for Colombia to collect more revenues for or, or our social investment. And nobody will invest in this country without security. For first time, there was a strong speech in Colombia of any presidential candidate with the possibilities to win on security and on investment. And I said, security without restricting freedoms. Security with criticism, with free media. Security with my closet friends. And security for my most radical opponents. During our administration, we held, pay attention, two presidential elections, two congressional elections, two regional elections, and the election of one referendum. And all the candidates enjoy effective guarantees, effective guarantees. This is what I call democratic security. And I said, we can no longer consider security as a path for dictators. Security is a democratic value. Security is a source of resources. Therefore, we consider that security and investment were the means, and social cohesion were the end. As security and investment was the, were the requirements for social cohesion, social cohesion was the validator for security and for investment. The, this is what I call the triangle of confidence. Confidence upon three pillars. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, my name is Adriana Bueno. I'm Colombian, and I'm a student here of the Masters of Development Management at LSE. Uh, one of the lessons that the LSE has stressed the most during our studies here is that institutions matter for development of a country, the quality of institutions. I would like to know what would you say is the legacy of your government for strengthening the institutional framework in Colombia? Thank you. For democratic security was very important to reestablish the judiciary. In many parts of the country, the judiciary had been displaced and replaced. Guerrilla campaigns, paramilitary campaigns, they did exercise justice in many parts of the country because they had displaced and replaced the Institutional Justice Administration. We restore the presence of the Justice Administration effectively all over the country. It is one key point. Second, we dismantle the paramilitary organization. 
We restore the state monopoly to fight criminals. It, this is a second point to enforce institutions. Third, we reestablish the effectiveness of decentralization. Colombia had fought for more of a century to introduce the popular election of mayors and governors. But 400 out of 1,102 mayors could not exercise their duties because of the threats of the terrorist groups. At the end of my administration, all mayors and governors, regardless their political origins, regardless their political origins, were able to exercise their duties in their cities and in, in their states, in their provinces. The reestablishment of decentralization, many decentralized resources were being robbed by the penetration of these terrorist groups into the regional administrations. For we reestablish the transparent management of these resources. At least we abolish the penetration of the illicit groups in managing these resources. I had discussions with the Supreme Court of Justice. I consider that it is necessary to combine the respect to independent institutions with deliberation. Any citizen, any branch of the state has the right to discuss decisions of any institutions. I have argued with some sector of the Supreme Court of Justice, but we respected their decisions. Therefore, we consider that our institutions are much more stronger because of our security than before. Let me say this. I consider that one very important institution in any rule of law is people participation. There were years when in my country we had the assassination of 15 journalists. Keep in mind, one five, 15 journalists. Our policy on democratic security provided them with guarantees. During the last three years of administra my administration, we had three cases. I wanted zero, zero cases, but you see that we had a very positive trend. These are some outcomes of our administration regarding the preservation and restoration of strong independent institutions. Thank you. Lady in black at the front. Good afternoon. My name is Juanita Guerra, and I would like to ask you two questions. One, um, what do you have to say about the false positives uh, as a policy of a state during your government? 
And two, which one would you say that is the major achievement of the social cohesion as a pillar in your government? False positives were not a policy of our administration. There were false positives and false accusations. Uh, I don't like to name myself victim, but if I were able to speak on myself like a victim, I would say to you that since a long time ago, I have the victim of false accusations. It is enough to read some books here in Europe with inputs from our terrorist groups. In our administration, we created confidence for people to denounce, for victims to show up and to claim for reparation before people did not want to denounce. People were fearful. And victims did not want to claim for reparation because, because they were afraid and they considered that it was useless. We gave power to the victims for them to place their claims. And we started one process that is known with the name of administrative reparation of victims. And uh, in the case of human rights abuses, during our administration, people felt much more confident to denounce. Quite often, the Minister of Defense, the commanders of the military forces, the commander of the police, and I, as president, we had open hearings to receive people complaints on human rights abuses. It was very, very important. Every week on Sundays or on Mondays, during the eight years of the administration, we had town meetings on security, open to the people. At the beginning, people did not want to place their complaints. When people realized that they could be confident, they began to place all their complaints, and it was excellent. We, in our administration, did sanction any fault against human rights. I remember that night when the Minister of Defense and the high command of the military came to see me at 9 p.m. and said to me, Mr. President, here we have some findings on false positives. At 12, I told them, okay, come here tomorrow at 7. And at 7 a.m., we sadly had to remove from the army 27 high-ranking officials. It is very important to consider the penetration of narco-trafficking. I visited the office of United Nations in Bogota 
The representative of the United States Nation invited me to listen to a witness. His testimony was that in his brigade, there had been false positives because of narco-trafficking penetration. Narco-traffickers, to remain in impunity, they, in collusion with isolated members of our armed forces, kill innocent people to distract the country and to say to the country, we are doing our best. They were killed innocent people instead of going after narco-traffickers. But in every case, my administration imposed sanctions. At the very beginning of the administration, I invited publicly, and I repeated this speech every day to the people, I invited the people to denounce. And I, every day, urge the armed forces to be effective and transparent. This is the, this is the question, the answer to one of your questions. The other, in health, Colombia passed from 23 million people with health insurance. Today we have almost full coverage. Of course, in the coming three years, it is necessary to take up the set of benefits for the informal workers to put it at the level of the set of benefits for the formal workers. It is necessary to guarantee a stable budget. We need to do much more. But in my administration, we pass from 23 million people with health insurance with almost to all the population. And remember all the reforms that to fight corruption we introduce in hospitals. In the hospital of the National Health Service, known in Colombia as Instituto de los Seguros Sociales. And in education, in the 100 years before of my administration, Colombia had had more than 120 ministers of education. During our administration, there was one minister, an outstanding lady, now professor at Harvard University. We work in coverage, in quality, in relevance, in vocational training, and we created a new framework for my country to advance in R&D. When I was going to lead the presidency, I said to my fellow Colombians, the country is not in a paradise, but we have a good trend. In coverage, in basic education, we passed from 78 to 100%. In middle education, from 58 to 80. In vocational training, we used to train 1 million Colombians per year. At the end of our administration, more than 8 million Colombians. In university coverage, we pass from 22 to 36. President Santos had the possibility to reach 50%. And in budget 
for public universities, we advance a lot, but the country needs much more. In loans for students, you know, in one institution is a text we pass from 60,000 students with loans to more than 300,000. Just in one small project with the private sector, we pass from 100 loans per year to more than 1,000 loan, loans per year. We need much more, but we advance a lot. And because of the short time of, of time, I cannot refer to you to our efforts for quality, for relevance, just two mentions. Public teachers were chosen because of political intrigue. We introduced a change, and we began to choose public teachers on merits. It was crucial in our country to create pertinence, relevance, between university programs and the Colombian community, we created a system to observe how graduate students perform once they go to the business community. They seek for jobs to give better information to them and to their parents. We made all the efforts in all these five aspects. I am very optimistic because President Santos will use the framework we created for R&D. And he will take advantage of the enormous amount of growth in royalties from the oil sector, from the coal sector, and from the mining sector, giving the efforts of our administration to put 10% of the royalties in the program for R&D. Professor, I, I was informed before coming that there is a question on one journalist. His name is Mr. Morris. And I want not to, to miss this question. Well, we, we have a kind of queue here. There's a lady who caught my eye some about 15 minutes ago up there with the other man. No, perhaps further back. Sorry, I'm just going to ask the question. Um, my question is with regards to the pillar. It's lower, please. Sorry. It's lower. Um, my question is with regards to the pillar of security. Um, statistics published by a union organization in Colombia, um, Escuela Sindicalista, recently showed that over 50% of the unionists who were killed worldwide in 2009 and 2010 were actually killed in Colombia. Also, the 2011 country report published by Amnesty International verified that out of 30,000 par former paramilitaries who were charged of gross human rights violation, only three were actually convicted. Um, you just mentioned that human rights violation are committed by individuals and not by state. However, is it not the state's responsibility to bring justice and security to its people? And how do you justify this as being a successful 
pillar of security and justice. Thank you. Applaud her and pay attention to my answer. <laughs> my friend. Unions. I went to the public university in the 70s of two centuries ago. And I remember the presence of Marxist communist guerrillas. And they brought to my country one idea, the combination of all forms of struggle. They killed and kidnapped, and they penetrated students, journalists, politicians, and the labor movement. It did hurt my country a lot. Later on, it came the paramilitary reaction, and paramilitary began to kill trade unionists, accusing them of being guerrillas collaborators. And in vengeance, guerrillas began to kill trade unionists, accusing them of being traitors. And at the end, guerrillas and paramilitaries as well were co-opted by narco-traffic. This is the situation my government found. In the number 27, of my platform of 100 points that I launched to the voters one month before the elections, I said, if we win, we are going to do our best to protect unionists, journalists, teachers. And in joint action with Vice President Santos, we work a lot results. Before my administration, there were years with the killing of more than 376 trade unionists, large year 14. We need zero cases, but we have to know where we were and where we are. Impunity. Before my administration, there was one single sentence condemning murderers of unionists. At the end of my, at the end of my administration, there were more, more than 200, more than 200. The judiciary is independent in Colombia. You can check with them. At the beginning of my administration, there was one individual in jail accusing of these murders. At the end of my administration, there were more than 200. My government provided individual effective protection to 10,000 people. 2,000 out of 10 were trade unionists. 
No one of them with effective protection was killed. Our administration made all the effort to effectively protect them. Last year, in the assembly of the International Labor Organization, for first time, my country was not included in the list of non-compliant countries. For first time, for first time was excluded, totally excluded from the list of non-compliant compliant countries. We have advanced a lot, and we introduced many laws. One law to extend the sentence against killers of trade unionists. We passed the maximum sentence from 40 to 60 years. This is one of the laws enacted by my government. Conviction of paramilitaries. When my administration began, the consolidation of all the terrorists had the approximate amount of 60,000. 60. There are still many. But we could have in between six and 8,000. It is quite different from 60,000. We demobilized, roughly speaking, 35,000 members of the paramilitary organization and 18,000 of guerrillas. The judiciary is independent in Colombia. They are advancing in the judgments of those who have demobilized. And maybe there are not enough number of convictions yet, but there have been many good findings. Many bodies of disappeared people have been found because of the application of this policy. Many killers of journalists, of trade unionists, have been discovered because of the confessions. And keep in mind this. Before my administration, in Colombia, people used to talk about paramilitaries in a very uh, social way, not in public. People talk a lot about paramilitaries in family meetings, in meetings with friends, but there was no action. I can't look you, look at you, at your eyes, because I did my best against paramilitaries and guerrillas and all kinds of narco-traffickers. Look at this, look at this. Do you know, and the, the report you have, it seems that it uh, says nothing about this. You know where are the 14 main ringleaders of the paramilitary organization? They are in USA jails. 
because of the decision made by, administra by, by the administration to extradite them. Hang, hang on. This extradition, when uh, at the beginning, my, my administration extradited, roughly speaking, 1,200 individuals involved in narco-traffic. At the beginning, we said publicly, we are going to suspend any extradition order of paramilitary kingpins if they fulfill their obligations. Among within their obligations, I remember, is the obligation to have their wealth to repair the victims, to dismantle their organizations, to confess their crimes. And almost two years after the demobilization, we judge that those 14 kingpins were not fulfilling their duties. For under my responsibility alone, and I am the only one accountable, they were extradited. But pay attention to this. When I said we are not going to extradite them, my critics said Uribe won't extradite them because Uribe wants to legalize them. And the morning after we extradited them, the same critics said Uribe extradites them because Uribe does not want that they confess their crimes. Pay attention to this. And I remember that we reached disagreement with the United States, the Colombian state. I did not speak about the Colombian government. I spoke about the Colombian state. Can exercise the right to contact these people for interrogations in the United States. Our Supreme Court of Justice has interrogated them in the United States. Therefore, you, you see the efforts we have made. And I remember that one of the last visits I received from the representative of the United Nations High Commissioner Office for, Officer for Human Rights, Dr. Christian Salazar came to see me, Mr. President, good news. In the last 20 months, we have received only four complaints for human rights abuses. And my answer was, Mr. Salazar, I am not happy. We need zero cases. We need zero cases. And I am certain that the Colombian Armed Forces today are in much more better shape to fulfill human rights obligations than before. Thank you. We, we, we've got far more people wanting to ask questions than we have time for. I'm going to switch back to the original idea of taking three questions at a time. 
because we can get through. <laughs> How maybe, can I? We can get through maybe half a dozen p uh, questions in the time waiting for us, which I think is all we can hope for. Lady back there in the back with the apple wax. How yeah. many, Professor? I hope in two lots of three. Okay. <laughs> hey, slowly, please, for me to write down your, your questions. Hello, my name is Fernanda. Uh, I'm from Brazil. I'm a LSE student and I'm also a journalist. Um, I, as we all know, uh, drug trafficking is a serious problem in Brazil. And uh, we had a big operation uh, last year with the army in the communities. And I want uh, your, what are your, your thoughts regarding what can be done in Brazil regarding security, especially uh, in Rio de Janeiro? If we think about, uh, we're gonna have the World Cup there and then the Olympic Games. And finally, I would like you to comment about Dilma Rousseff. Comments about? Dilma Rousseff, our new president. What do you think about her? Ah, uh, me. Yeah, two President questions. Dilma. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. The lady over there has been very patient in the black. Um, president Uribe. Uh, first, I, I want to ask uh, two questions. The first one is if you ever felt um, alone in the fight against terrorism in regard to the other countries of the um, Organization of American States. And the other questions, first I want to recall uh, the very moment when you did uh, your first public appearance after the news of the liberation of uh, Ingrid Betancourt. What I saw through the internet was you praying the Lord Father to give thanks to God for uh, the success uh, of the prayer. Excuse operation. me, could you repeat the last, the, the, yeah, the yeah, last yeah. point of your question yeah. regarding um, Madame Betancourt? Uh, yeah. Um, in your first uh, public ap appearance in uh, one school in Colombia, um, before your, you address uh, your speech to the people there in Colombia, the very first thing you did was to pray. You, uh, you make a prayer to give thanks to God for the, for the success of the operation in the liberation of uh, um, Mrs. Betancourt. And, uh, who, who, who did deliver this speech? You, you, were <laughs> you went about to give a speech in a school, yeah. And before the speech, uh, you, you, you made a prayer, if you remember, <laughs> to give thanks for the, for the success of the operation. Um, I'm probably your biggest Venezuelan admirer, but uh, what I won't forget you ever was the legalization of abortion in Colombia. And the second question I want to make you is... What about Venezuela? <laughs> in Colombia, in Col no, <laughs> and your biggest Venezuelan admirer. But um, I, I, as a Catholic, I, I won't be able to forget, you know, the legalization of abortion in Colombia. And the question I want to make you is... Um, uh, how you feel about the betrayal for the Catholics, majority of, of Catholics in Latin America in regards of the legalization of abortion? Because, you know, Catholic majority of Catholics in Latin America, we feel betrayed about that, not only in Colombia, but in, in the rest of Latin America. Well, you've got a question about abortion there. Um, but up there in the green. Yeah. As 
fair, it's especially the chairman of the controversy, but not over that issue, except for the fact. Dr. Oribe, I'll, I'll keep it short. I'm very interested in the internet and e-commerce uh, sectors in Colombia. I'm part of a group of investors looking to go there and explore that. What is the, the government doing to improve the sector? One of the limitations is that only 2.5 million Colombians have broadband access. So what, number one, what is the government doing about it? Internet and, access Internet to access and broadband. E yeah. <laughs> and number two, what is your prediction for the internet and technology sector in Colombia? Hey, you have abortion, you have the internet. I have received three questions, Professor. So far, if you want to, no, to no. get that, that possibility for, I, I for think, my question. I think we're, we're, we've had our three questions. We're looking at the mountains now. So. Okay, okay. Brazil. I compliment that Brazil is starting to fight narco-trafficking. Our countries, and I speak about Mexico, Brazil, Colombia, have problems of consumption, domestic consumption, related with criminality. In my opinion, I, I had the opportunity to receive the governor of Rio de Janeiro when I was president, and he study how Colombia was making progress in, in the field of security. What they are doing in Rio de Janeiro favelas is right. And it is an excellent signal in the eve of the new Olympic Games and of the new World, World, World Soccer, Soccer Cup. In my opinion, it is necessary to widespread this policy to all the Brazilian cities with similar problems. In Colombia, we use some elements. First, on production. Brazil and Colombia share the Amazon rainforest. Many rural communities in Brazil cut the jungle down and replace it for soybeans, in Colombia for coca leaves. Our countries have to preserve the jungle. One way is to pay rural communities for them to preserve the jungle, not for cutting the jungle down. It is necessary. Now I have heard that President Dilma is moving the armed forces to protect the Amazon rainforest. Our countries need that from the international community we receive help for us to pay rural communities to preserve and to recover the jungle as an obligation with the anti-climate change world policy. We use crops substitution in places where it is not necessary to destroy the jungle. It is very important to combine spraying 
and manual eradication. Colombia has advanced a lot with the legislation to confiscate illicit wealth. My administration advanced a lot with this legislation. But we have had problems in the administration of these goods that have been expropriated from criminals. Colombia has implemented a very successful policy to go after money laundering. Colombia is doing well against chemical precursors. And Colombia has advanced a lot in making narco-trafficking negligible as a percentage of the total size of our economy. These are some of our experiences. President Dilma, in my opinion, I have great admiration from President Cardoso. The social policy that has been implemented successfully in Brazil in the last years, even with my friend President Lula, was conceived by President Cardoso and was made possible by him because of the turning around of the economy. President Dilma, Dilma wants to follow this policy. With President Lula, we advance a lot in the integration of the South American economies with the agreement between the Indian community and Mercosur. President Dilma had the same willingness. With all the respect and with all my admiration for President Lula, I disagree with some points of his international policy. For instance, regarding the hideouts of Colombian terrorists in Venezuela or in Ecuador. I am confident that President Dilma will rethink this stand. You ask me if I felt alone in this fight. Never. Never. It was a very important fight for my country, my generation. The elders and the youngsters have not lived one single day of peace in my country. Why we have to, to tolerate criminal hideouts in other countries? What is the reason for the organization of American states? The organization of American states has to enforce the fulfillment of some international regulations from the from United Nations and even from the Organization of American States. And I remember one regulation. No country can tolerate terrorists. No country can tolerate terrorists. Therefore, I am happy in my consciousness 
because of the efforts we make to fight terrorists in Colombia and in other countries. It was our duty for the well-being today for Colombians and in the future for the people of Venezuela. Terrorists, they don't know ethics. Today, they are Venezuela friends. And tomorrow, they are going to be enemies of the people of Venezuela. This is the way they, they work. Therefore, I beg your understanding to consider that our fight was good for Colombia and thinking in the future good for all the neighboring countries. Of course, I pray and I recognize I, I am a fighter. Every day I fight for my ideas. I have been asked, what do you do after leaving the presidency? And I have defined myself as a jobless fighter. <laughs> a fighter for the rule of law, for the right of the new generation of Colombians to enjoy a peaceful, uh, to enjoy a prosperous country for I am a fighter, and I pray, but I respect freedom of religion. I respect all the freedoms. In the case of abortion, we need to consider that one question is the religious rule. Another question is the state rule. It could be that the state rule, as in the case of Colombia, allows abortion in some cases, but the lady is free to choose between the state rule and the religious rule. It could be a woman saying, however, the state rule in Colombia allows me for abortion in these cases, I want abort because of my religious rule. It is very important to go deeper in this. I consider that it is the necessary ethics to relate the state and religion. Why I pray for the release of Ingrid Betancourt? It was a difficult case, dear students. <laughs> how, how could I pray? It was a miracle <laughs> because of the efforts of our, of our armed forces. I remember that when I was president-elect, I was to Paris. And there were many people shouting against me. You are a criminal. You, why? You don't want to give up too far for the release of Mrs. Betancourt. And President Chirac was very concerned and told me, President Uribe, this is a big political problem. President Chirac, I cannot give up because of the bad experiences in my country. In the past, governments gave up. And by giving up, they promote, promoting new cases 
Many more cases of kidnapping. I won't give up. President Uribe, you cannot say this in public. President Chirac, I have the same speech in private or in, in public. It is very important, justice, to have in your political life the same, the same speech, whoever the audience. In politics, what you say in private, you should be ready to sustain it in public. It is very, very important. And you cannot change your speech because you have a different audience before you. And I resisted all the pressure here in Europe, in my country, in many South American countries. Many people telling me, you have to give up. And I didn't. But at the same time, I made all the efforts with the Minister of Defense, with the police, with the military, to look ways for the release of Mrs. Betancourt and the others who were in captivity with her. And I remember that we have faced failures. In my first military attempt to rescue a group of kidnapped people, 12 out of 14 were killed. At 5 a.m., I told my wife, pray, because today we are going to have an attempt of military rescue of this group of hostages. At 9, I was called, Mr. President, 12 out of 14 have been killed. One of the deaths were the governor of my state, and the other had been a minister of defense, a lovely gentleman, very well known in the country. Imagine how difficult was this moment for me. But it is necessary to persevere in difficult moments. At the moment we received the bad news, we were in the surroundings of Cali, installing a military base to fight kidnappers. And we went to the jungle, and on the flight, I heard this conversation. What are we going to say? And I replied, there is no discussion. We are going to say what is true. We went to the jungle. At evening, we went to the hospital to visit the survivors. And at 8 p.m., I said to the commander of the army, General, now it is our turn. You and I have to go on live TV to say to our fellow Colombians how this operation happened and why this operation failed. That night, my fellow Colombians divided and became united. Some portion of the country said, I disagree with the Uribe attempts of military rescues. Other portions said, we agree. But they became united in considering that my government 
had said what was true. When my government said what was true, my government succeeded. There were cases in which I couldn't, that some people in my government said what was true, and we failed. I recognize this. And at the next morning, I went to the funeral. You cannot imagine how difficult it was for me. But we persevered in these military operations. And during our eight years terms, Colombia passed from almost 4,000 cases of kidnapping per year. In the large year of my administration, we had 124. I am not happy. We need zero cases. But the trend was, in some degree, positive. It is necessary to persevere in difficult moments and to assume responsibilities. The next morning, when we did bombing, the terrorist campground in Ecuador, in the jungle, without any presence of civilians. I was called by one outstanding political figure in my country, and he said, Mr. President, you must fire the commander of the Air Force. This is the only way for you to avoid diplomatic conflicts. And my answer was, I understand we are going to have diplomatic conflicts, but if I fire the commander of the Air Forces, my country will lose the opportunity to get rid of kidnapping. That night, I appeared on live TV, and I said, I am the only one accountable. And it is necessary to recognize the merits to those who deserve the merits. And that night, instead of fighting the military of their forces, of their force, I did applaud him. I said, I want to applaud the Air Force because of this operation. And I assume all the ac accountability. Professor, there is a case, and Ambassador Rodriguez was asked this morning for this case. It's the case of one Colombian journalist whose name is Mr. Morris, Holman Morris. He has accused me of restrictions against free media. I think all the opposite. My country dismantled, my country did weaken the terrorist organizations. And for journalists, it is much better to work without the threat of terrorists than with this threat. Mr. Morris, we were at the eve of one case of release of hostages. We had adopted regulations with the committee of the International Red Cross. And Mr. Morris transgressed the regulations and went to the jungle and had a meeting with FARC the day before. In public, I 
refuse this behavior. I couldn't be in agreement with this behavior. We gave all the guarantees to the Red Cross for the release. But how can I accept that one journalist in the name of free press breaks even the agreements with the Red Cross in the difficult moment of the release of a group of, of, of hostages? I considered that journalists have the right for freedom, but they have the right to have solidarity with their fellow Colombians. And there is no solidarity with Colombians where journalists are permissive with terrorist groups. I accept any disagreement with me. Any, I, I argue against false accusations against me. But I cannot accept permissiveness of journalists with terrorist groups. At the end of my administration, I was said, Holman Morris has been deprived from the United States visa. And he has been told that you are the guilty of this decision made by the United States. I didn't know anything about that. And he called my chief of media in the presidency and requested him to beg me the favor for me to intercede for him to have his visa again. I didn't call to the embassy. I have never called for any visa. But I said to my chief of media, if you want, call them. Call the people of the embassy and tell them that I have no problems. I argue with Mr. Morris here. But I, can, I, I don't know to fight with dark cards. I fight with transparent cards, always on the table. And my chief of media transmitted this message to the embassy. And I have, I have known that Mr. Morris happily criticizes me in many, many audiences in the United States. And I happily tell this tale because I don't know how to lie, my friends. Are we ready, Professor? I'm afraid, I'm afraid we're more than ready. There are a lot of people, some of you might promise they were cool. I have to break the pledge. I was asked to wind this up at 7.30. It's now 7.45. So I think we have to move I on. I have to fly to Chicago tomorrow very early. <laughs> and, and, and I hope to see Mr. Morris there. Um, well, I'm sure Mr. Morris can look after himself. But we, our job now is to thank the speaker for a, a riveting performance. And... Uh, a, a brilliant answering of a number of difficult questions. Thank you very much indeed. Oh, my, my gratitude. My, my, my. Thank you. Thank you to all of you. Can we wait, wait, wait? Can you, can you wait until this... Can you please wait until the speaker has left before leaving the hall? Just a minute or two. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for coming. You've been a wonderful audience this evening. Thank you. Thank you.